Well, good morning, Bay Hills. It's great to see you. Grab the study guide that's in your program. If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 1212. We are going to get started. You're turning there. Real quick, I bumped into an article from a uh, film director. His name is Paul Schrader. He's done a couple big movies in Hollywood. And he was interviewed about growing up in a Christian family, a religious family, going to church on Sundays and midweek prayer meeting and youth group and so on and so on and so forth. And he was quoted as saying this. It kind of took me by surprise. He said, I like going to church in the mornings to, to organize my thoughts, to organize my week, and just to be quiet. I don't walk out of church because I'm bored. No, I go to church to be bored, to have time to process and to think through my week. Well, all righty then. So I, I guess this is the boring part of the service. So if you want to put your, your to-do list together, maybe get your phone, answer a couple emails, take a quick little nap, that's fine, right? Or together we can talk about what the Bible says is the number one most important characteristic to please God. Bible says it's faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says there's, there's one thing that you absolutely need to please God. Now, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm assuming you're here because that's what you're wanting to do, please God. So we're, we're starting a brand new series today. It's about a five, six-week series. We're talking about what is faith, how do you get it, how do you lose it, so you make sure you don't do that, what are some of the phases of faith, so on and so forth, because it's apparently, according to the biblical writers, it is so critically important now. If you know anything about the Bible and faith, Hebrews chapter 11 uh, is identified. It's sometimes it's called the hall of faith, right? Because there's so many individuals there that are identified as, as people that God is pleased with because of their faith. So we're going to start there, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, I'm going to read it for you. I have the verses on the screen, but like I said, I always encourage you to follow along if you have a Bible. Uh, now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do, do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. He's speaking of those in the Old Testament, and they're commended for it. It was interesting to me as I read and studied Hebrews chapter 11 this week, that was the one word and theme that commentators say, hey, listen, that word to commend, that verb, that is God giving someone a high five saying, good job. And and the list of people in Hebrews chapter 11, that's what he's doing. High five, good job. They are commended for their faith. It says, by faith we understand that this universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he too was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. But before he was taken, he too was commended as one who pleased God. And then here's the key phrase, the anchor phrase, uh, not just in Hebrews, but almost the entire Bible, without faith, without faith, it is absolutely impossible to please God. These were all commended for their faith. That's verse 39, how Hebrews 11 wraps up. I was thinking last night, just I was kind of looking over my notes one more time, um, what you and I do to please people. Think about your relationships, and I'm going to ask, well, what does it take to please your spouse, to please your kids, to please your parents? What does it take to please your boss or your coworkers? What does it please to, uh, to take to please your coach or your teacher? Now, depending on the relationship you have with these different people, that can be a very simple, easy answer, 
or it can be very complex, very convoluted. You're never sure if you're pleasing them or not. But with God, the writer of Hebrews kind of waters it down to this one principle. Listen, I'm assuming you're here because you want to please God. You've got to figure this faith thing out. You've got to understand what it is and how it works. It's the first domino that thereafter creates a life that is pleasing to God. The problem is that so many of us, even within the church, have misunderstandings and, and miscomprehension about what it is, and we use the word in ways that is not intended by the bib- biblical authors. Let me give you four faith misconceptions. Write these down. Number one, for some of us, it means wishful thinking. You know, we pick our favorite sports team, and, you know, uh, uh, we say we, we have faith that the Raiders are going to win the Super Bowl, the Niners are going to win the Super Bowl, the Giants are going to win the World Series, right? The, of course, we have faith that the Warriors are going to win, but they're a good team. But when you use it about a team that's not so good, like the Raiders and Niners, it's just wishful thinking. And some of us use that word faith as just wishful thinking. That's not how the Bible uses it. For some, it is, it is the, the, the designation of a religious person. Oh, you're a person of faith. Why? Because you believe in God and go to church doesn't matter what God you believe in. It doesn't matter how often you go, but you're a person of faith, right? You pray before a meal, you're a person of faith. Other people understand it to be a correct set of beliefs. If you just believe the right stuff, believe the right stuff about God, Jesus, the Bible, end times, some of those things. You just believe the right stuff, you're in. You're a person of faith. Problem is that while what you believe matters, that's not the designation that, that the Bible says that's not what faith is. For some, and this is used kind of more of a negative sense, is you got to check your, your, your brain at the door. It's a blind leap of faith. You remember Indiana Jones in the last crusade, and he's trying to, I don't know, get the chalice or something, and, and he's got to take this blind leap of faith or step of faith, and there's like a nothingness canyon underneath, and he's got to just step into it hoping that something and someone's going to catch him, and he's not going to fall to his death. And some people in the world think of faith as just that. You're just taking a blind leap. You're not using your brain. Now, because some of us have part or a combination of these ideas, the way our faith gets now worked out is all messed up in terms of how some of us work it out. Let me give you four examples of how some of us work our faith out. For some of us, it's only in case of emergency. Now, I'm going to say this as kindly and as tactfully as I can, but this is what I've noticed with some people. Not in church for years. Don't go to Bible study. Don't give. Don't contribute. Don't pray. Don't want anything to do with the pastor or Christians or God until their life falls apart. And and one of their kids goes off the deep end. Now they call the pastor. Uh, Someone in their family passes away. Now we call the pastor. I got fired for no reason. Got arrested for no reason. Now we call the pastor. And we treat God like he is, or the pastor, or the church, or faith. We treat, we treat God like he's our spare tire when we get a flat in life. Now, I'm not saying we won't help these people. We absolutely want to help them. But you know what I've then noticed? After you help them, after you get them back on their feet, you know what happens? Bye-bye God. Because he's only for emergencies. For other people, it's only when it fits my schedule. You see, pastor... <clears throat> My kid, you know, they're really good at baseball, really good at soccer, really good at volleyball, really good at softball. And, and weekends, that's when we got our tournaments. So we just, we're not going to be, it's just not going to fit our schedule. Okay. Don't come running to me then when 
your kid's 13 and they went off the deep end. You know, I want to go to Bible study, but, you know, I work. And uh, I know Bible studies once every other week and everything. It's not that huge of a commitment. But uh, because of my commute, for me to make Bible study on Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights, I might have to actually skip dinner, you know. We certainly wouldn't want you to skip dinner. Doesn't fit my schedule, I'm not in. It's got to be convenient, right? For other people, it's only special occasions. Like I said, have nothing to do with God. Don't pray, don't read their Bible, don't go to church. But if they get married, oh, yeah, no, that, that's, we'll invite God to the wedding. We want to make sure and get married in the church with a pastor because we want God's blessing. Baby dedication, they stand right on this stage and they say, God, help us be great parents. We want to live for you. And then they're gone. It's going to happen in a couple weeks. There are some Christians that we refer to as CEO Christians. Stands for Christmas and Easter only. Now, I'm not against it. But can I, it's just us to this morning, right? Can I just say what the little secret is amongst us? The goal isn't to get them to Easter. The the goal is to get them to Easter and the week after Easter. Because that's what faith is. It's not a, you know, know, buffet, take whatever you want from God whenever you want. And I want it to be part of your life. So yeah, we will make an effort at Christmas and at Easter. And you should ask your friends because they are more likely to come at those times. But for some of us, faith is just on special occasions. For others, it's only if it's fun and only if it benefits me. So with, when, when I go to seminars and I go to conferences for pastors, there's two extreme thoughts in terms of how I should preach and teach. This is the kind of things that say, you should be a theological doctrinal preacher or you should be a needs-based preacher, a theological doctrinal preacher or a needs-based preacher. Theological doctrinal says this, just teach them the word of God and let them figure out how to apply it on their own. Theological, doctrinal. The other, needs-based preaching. This is needs-based preaching. Find out what they need. Find out what they want. Find out what they like. And do that. Help them figure out how to deal with stress. Help them figure out how to build a better marriage. Help them figure out how to handle their finances. Needs, wants, desires. Help them do that better. Right? Now, question. Does this book talk about stress? Does this book help with marriage, finances, career? Of course. Of course I want to do this, right? But can I also say something to you? This book is not just about you. Does that make sense? So you can't be only in this extreme. You can't live well as long as pastors got good jokes and I like the music and they still have free donuts, then I'll go. <laughs> you got to be careful if you're living anywhere close to here. Now, again, the, the Bible speaks of doctrine and theology, and sometimes, you, you know, it's like medicine. You got to take it, and you, you don't really taste it, but you got to know that. You got to understand it, because it's about his kingdom, not your kingdom. And again, the problem is when you get to either extreme. You want to bring them to the middle, and you want to live in the middle. That's the idea. But my point is this. If what's on the screen creeps into your life anyway, when it comes to faith, you're going you're gonna to crash and burn at some point. So this series is to make sure you and I understand what is it? How does it work? How do I apply it? We're going to start with a clean, easy definition. I want you to write this down. Faith is trusting and obeying God no matter what, in spite of consequences, 
or circumstances. Trusting and obeying God, no matter what, in spite of circumstances or consequences. Now, I say write it down, not just in your notes. You might want to write it literally in your, put it in your phone. Write it in your Bible, unless it's one of my Bibles at the church, then don't write it in that Bible, right? Get that clean. But I want you to lock this in because this is important, okay? There's two things. I want to demystify the word of faith. I want to take some of the spirituality out of it because some of us, we get confused just because we put too much on the word. We live a life of faith. Everything we do in life revolves around faith or trust. Use that word. So for example, all of us that took showers this morning before you came to church, and those of you who did, thank you. The rest of you, help us out a little bit next week. Just kidding you. You had faith that when you turned the shower on, hot water would come out. Not just water. Because if just water came out, cold water, we would all be talking about it. You had faith, hot water came out. When you got in your car and you turned the ignition to your car or pushed the button, whatever kind of car you had, you had faith that that engine would turn over and you, could, you wouldn't have to walk to church. You had faith in that. Every one of us had faith when we sat in the chair. We trusted that it would hold us. If you're in the blue chairs, you had a little more faith than in the black chairs. But essentially, we all had trust. The, the faith that the chair would hold us. But we will take it to an extreme. We, 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 will, we will meet with a doctor whose name we can't pronounce. He will give us a prescription we can't read. We will go to a pharmacist we've never met. He will give us a medication we've never heard of, but we'll take it for two months to see if it gets rid of whatever we're dealing with. You know what they call that? Faith. You trust the doctor. You trust the pharmacist. You trust the company that made the drug to fix whatever's going on with you. And it's the same thing with God. It's trust. Do you trust him to thereafter obey him? Now, the middle words are very important, in spite of. Because every one of us here at some point in time has trusted and obeyed God. Every one of us. But here's the thing. There's times when it's easy to trust God. There's times when you get a major benefit to obey God. But how about obeying God and trusting him when you don't see a benefit? How about obeying and trusting him when you're going to get teased by your classmates, when you're going to look down upon or you lose a promotion at work because you're not willing to cut corners? What about then? That's when it's hard. In spite of consequences, in spite of circumstances, even when it's hard, even when it's not popular, even when you don't immediately get a return on your investment of faith. Now, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to look at six characteristics of faith. I'm going to tell you in advance what I want you to do. At the end, I'm going to put the list up on the screen, and I want to make sure, even as we're going through it now, what one do I need to really work on? What one do I need to implement, adjust, apply to be a greater person of faith? There's six. Let's jump in. Faith metrics, number one, believing. Faith is believing even when I don't literally see it. Believing even when I don't literally see it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 is a very famous verse related to faith. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance or evidence. Depending on what translation you use, it'll use either one of those words. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance or evidence about what we do not see. Now, notice, faith should produce confidence in you. It doesn't mean that at times you don't have questions, issues, or doubts, but you should have a confidence, now watch, based upon evidence. Not based upon floating around in a cloud, not based upon wishful thinking. No, based upon evidence. Evidence about what? Evidence about the existence of God. 
Evidence about the truth of scripture. Evidence about the deity of Jesus, that he was God. Evidence that there was an empty tomb. Evidence that what this book says about Jesus is really 100% true. It's based upon evidence. Now, if you're sitting here going, well, I've never heard him talked about evidence, then you gotta find out. Dave Sauer, our discipleship pastor, his team, Babette and Chris are working hard with all these discipleship classes. Sign up for one. If you're not going to do that, then go to a Bible study small group. If you're not going to do that, then get a book. If you're not going to do that, then go online and start listening to Christian pastors and podcasts. But you've got to figure out and understand what is the evidence for your faith. If someone asked you tomorrow morning at school or at work, why do you, why do you even believe? Would you know what to say? Because you should, not even for their sake as much as it would help them, but for your sake. Confidence based upon evidence. Now, I want you to notice the phrase right after. Even though we do not see. So I want you to have confidence based upon evidence that you do not say. Now, wait, wait. how can you not see certain evidence? Well, in this particular case, he's talking, what are you not going to see? You're not going to see God. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. You're not, go take a walk somewhere in the nature. You're, he's not going to show up to you. He's not going to meet you in the parking lot. He's not going to meet you at night. He's just, that's not how he works and operates nowadays. You will not have a face-to-face visual encounter with Christ until you're glorified. You won't see him, but you could still look and find evidence about him. You see, if you're going to use a scientific understanding of evidence like a CSI investigator, all those shows, right? If that's what your interpretation of evidence is, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. M- man, we say this, seeing is, seeing is believing. I got to see it, then I'll believe it. And God says, yeah, not always. Sometimes believing is what's required before you're going to see it. 1960, JFK, our president stood before the country and said, within 10 years, within a decade, I want us to put a man on the moon. What's interesting about that is that in 1960, when you look at NASA, it's very interesting to to, to study this. They had no technology to shoot a man into space. And all the Americans were like, yeah, we're going to beat the Russians and get to the moon. Everybody at NASA was like, oh, shoot, what do we do? (laughs) They had no clue what to do, no technology. But what happened is we had a president with a vision that was able to see something in the future that then pushed the, tech, the, the, the scientist to start believing this can happen. And in, in a way, that's, that's what happens with faith. It's what happened with, no, you're not going to be able to see him. But I will say this, if you look around the world, you should be able to see evidence of him. If you look within you, you should be able to see and feel a God-shaped vacuum that you know and I know is only filled by Jesus Christ. You can look and you can see it, but you're not going to be able to touch it. You're not going to be able to touch it. The second characteristic about faith is this. It's giving even when I could, if I wanted to, cut corners. I think this is interesting because the second example of faith relates to my finances. This is not a series on finances. I'm going to spend very little time here, but it's this idea that finances and faith go together. If you're around church long enough, you'll hear the term tithing. I remember once um, I saw a bumper sticker. I was in Texas, and it said, tithe if you love Jesus. And I remember seeing that, thinking to myself, that's incorrect. Incorrect. 
Tithing has nothing to do with whether you love him or not. It has everything to do with whether you trust him or not. That's the issue. Because I know a ton of people that love Jesus that don't tithe. They genuinely love him. It's a faith issue. It's a trust issue. Let me read to you the verses and let me explain what's going on here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did, his brother. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. This is interesting. I had to go back to Genesis chapter 4 to read the story. So you got two brothers. We're, we're going to spend some more time on, on this down the series. But you, you have these two brothers, Adam and Eve, they're, they're boys, and it's offering time. And, and, and Cain brings one thing, and Abel brings another thing. And don't all of us instinctively kind of think, well, you know, if we, if we give with the right heart, God's pleased. The problem is that that's not what Genesis 4 says. Genesis 4 says that God evaluated Cain's offering and evaluated Abel's offering and out loud said, I much prefer that one. And it kind of rocked me a little bit because I had not carefully read that passage before. Out loud, he says, in front of Cain and Abel, that's the better offering. The question is why? What did Abel do that Cain did not do? Because it's a faith component as described in Hebrews chapter 11. There's three characteristics, biblical characteristics of giving in the Bible. Number one is we are to give to God generously. In the Old Testament, it literally is a percentage. 10%, it literally means tithe. But it's Old Testament law, so we don't typically as much use that word, even though I believe it's a good starting point. The New Testament talks about be generous. That's all I'm going to say. You have to figure that out. What does that mean for you? Principle number two, give to God first. This is, this is right in Genesis 4. The, three chapters in, it's right in Genesis. Abel gave his first fruits. And it matters, uh, regardless of what you give, God says this, listen to me. Do you understand how it makes me feel when you pay your mortgage or your rent, then you pay your car note, then you pay your school loan, and then you pay for your groceries, and then you go out to eat, and then you put a down payment on the, on the house you're staying in for the summer, and then you get some new clothes, and then, and, then, and then down the road, when all that is taken care of, then you give to me. Do you realize how that makes me feel? Do you realize what that communicates as to my, your priority uh, of me in your life? Irrespective of what you give, make me number one in your life. Give to me first. And then the last one, give God your best. Not just what's acceptable. Give him your best. Years ago in October, November, Butterball Turkey Corporation set up a hotline, a customer service hotline so people could call and ask questions about how to cook a turkey for Thanksgiving. And, and one customer service uh, agent from Butterball received a phone call from a little bit older lady, and she said, we have a question, my husband and I, uh, we want to know if we can cook a turkey that we have had in our freezer in the garage for 25 years. <laughs> Excuse me, ma'am? Yeah, we've had it in the garage for 25 years. I don't know why you've ever, never, but we got to the bottom of the freezer. There it was. We wonder if we could cook it this Thanksgiving. So the customer service person at, at Butterball says, well, I guess technically, if, if, if the turkey, if the freezer had been at zero degrees or under or below for the entire 25 years, in theory, you could. 
But if at any point in time, maybe there was a power outage and the turkey started to thaw and then it refroze, you don't want, you don't want to cook it. It's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to not be good for you, right? And the consistency has been destroyed. Uh, but having said that, even if the turkey has been maintained at zero degrees or lower for 25 years, uh, we at Butterball Corporation would like to encourage you not, not to cook and to serve that turkey for Thanksgiving because the, the taste is going to be completely putrid from 25 years ago. There's a long pause on the phone, and the elderly lady said, she said, yeah, that's, that's what my husband and I were thinking. I, I think we'll just donate it to the church. <laughs> Question, do you give God your best? You want to know the main thing that comes from the story in Genesis 4? This is it. Watch. It was offering time, so this is what Cain did. He's a farmer. He goes into his warehouse, and it says this, literally, he took some fruit. Yeah, I guess that, that basket would be just as good, right? I'll just take this one right here. Uh, this will be my offering to God. Abel. Abel is also a farmer, but he has flocks. And this was, was his response. It says in Genesis 4 that he carefully evaluated his flocks, and he found the best one he could find. The best one. That's going to be my offering to God. Do we give generously? Do we give God first? Do we give God our best? Now, let me remind you, this is a sermon on faith, not finances. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, listen, part of faith is believing even when you don't see. And part of it is giving even when you could, you could cut corners. You want to know what I mean by that? What I mean by that is the person sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you, and on this stage doesn't know what you give. You could cut corners with me, with them, but not him. It's a faith issue. So you got to figure that one out. Principle number three is that faith is serving even when it's not convenient. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. What is that? Rain. He hadn't seen any rain for like forever. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And he became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Got a pop quiz for you. I need some participation. You guys ready? It's easy answers. Okay. Here, easy questions. You got to yell out the answer. Ready? Here it goes. How long did the 100-year war last? It lasted 116 years. Second question, what country makes Panama hats? Answer, Ecuador. In what month do Russians celebrate the October Revolution? November. November, you're just guessing, but very good. You're all catching on. What color is the purple finch? Crimson red. Where do Chinese gooseberries come from? New Zealand. New Zealand. Here's the real question. Why did he build the ark? Why? Because there's no rain. And he's miles from the nearest body of water. Read the story of Noah. You want to say what you want to know what the town people were all saying about him? You're a moron. I mean, not literally. That's kind of our interpretation here in Richmond. You're an idiot. What are you doing? When you ask theologians and commentators, they can't agree on how long he was building the ark. It's, it's as little as 20 years, 
as long as 120 years. Why are you doing it, Noah? Some questions like I was goofing off with you here. The, the answer isn't as obvious as the question. In this case, it's really, really simple. Why are you doing it, Noah? Answer, because God told me to. God told me. You know, sometimes serving isn't convenient. Sometimes serving isn't easy. Sometimes serving makes you tired. Sometimes serving means working along other side people that you don't get along with as well. And you do it anyway. You do it anyway. Why? Because it's part of our faith. It's part of faith. Do you, do you see how faith now is, is, is tangible? There's actually things I can do. Principle number four. I'm going to spend a little longer on this. Faith means obeying even when I don't fully understand. I don't know about you, but I got a couple questions. I got a couple issues I'd still like to work out with God. I can't figure all of it out. We all have something. It's interesting what it says about Abraham. We're going to actually spend more time with Abraham in the next couple weeks. Uh, But in verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and he went. Here it comes. Even though he didn't know where he was going. So I'm going to get to the story in a couple weeks. But to real quickly give you a snapshot, here's what's happening. God comes to him and Abraham is 75 years old. So pretty much older than most of us here this morning. 75 years old. And he says to him, listen, I know you don't have any kids. I know you don't own any land. But I, I'm going to give you so many kids. You're going to have a nation and you're going to have your own country that's going to impact the world. Right? But to do this, I need you to pack up and I need you to go to the country that I'm going to give you. Okay? 75 years old. Now, what Abraham asks God, I don't know about you, but to me, it's fairly reasonable. That sounds great. Can I ask you a question, God? How long is it going to take to get there? Where am I going? You want to know what God said? Pack. Pack. And Abraham embarks on one of the craziest journeys of his life. At age 75, packs up everything, puts it on donkeys and camels to travel halfway around his known world to a place he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't have a clue what's happening. He obeys anyway, even though he doesn't understand. I was reflecting on this, and I asked Sandy, my wife, I said, do you, do you, do you ever remember a time God asking you to do something that just didn't make sense, but you did it anyway? She said, yeah, when he told me to marry you. That wasn't meant to be funny. It's hurtful that you would laugh at me. <laughs> Years ago, I read, a, I read an explanation of Isaiah chapter 55 that was helpful to me. I hope it'll be to you. God is speaking in Isaiah 55, and in verse 8 and 9, he says this. Listen, I need you to understand, my thoughts are not your thoughts. You know what that means? I'm smarter than you are. My IQ is higher than yours is. My intelligence is higher than yours. That's what he's saying there. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Okay, let me, let me explain it to you. I'm going to give you an illustration of how your thoughts are not really what my thoughts are. Here's what he says. As the heavens, oh, not yet. Let's go back to the verse. As the heavens are higher than the earth. So the distance between earth and the heavens, so are my ways to your ways, so are my thoughts to your thoughts. 
the distance between earth and the heavens, the stars, the galaxies. So now let me show you. I'll put it up there, Vince. The distance between earth and the edge of the Milky Way, because we're part of the Milky Way, the edge of the Milky Way is 25,000 light years. The distance between earth and a galaxy called Andromeda is 2.5 million light years away. Now, to give you perspective, for those of us who weren't good at science, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. You want to know how long it takes the light from the sun to get to earth? You want to know how long? Eight minutes. Eight minutes. It is traveling at near 200,000 miles a second. The most recent discovery from people looking at the Hubble telescope and all these guys looking into outer space, they have discovered this galaxy. Let's put it on the screen. The galaxy they have named Mach S0647, and it is a distance of 13.3 billion light years away from planet Earth. Now, why is this important? Now I want to remind you of what God says to you In Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. On your best day, with your smartest idea, your thought still falls 13.3 billion light years from my thought. See, here's what some of us don't want to hear, but it's so important. You're not as smart as you think you are. So I need you to turn to the person on your right and say, you're not as smart as you think you are. And then to the person on your left, say, neither is Pastor Dave. Go ahead, tell him. (laughs) I just keep hearing Dave. What's going on here? That's all I hear is Dave. (laughs) Guys, if after church you go, I got questions, and God were to meet you right back there. Let's go sit in the cafe. Let's go sit in the cafe area. So you got your question question one and he goes question two and you're going through all your questions and he answers them all you want to know what would happen to you your brain would explode it would mess up our cafe area we couldn't have donuts that's why most of us come to bay hills so that's a problem (laughs) guys listen you getting answers from god is the equivalent of sitting in a high level master's doctorate level calculus class when you struggled with algebra in high school Is it fair to ask questions? Yes. Do you want some answers? Yes. But if you wait to get all your answers to your questions, you will never take a step of faith the way God intends. You'll never get there. And the point is, while you think you're being smart, you're being exactly the opposite. You're not processing what's on the screen. He's just... His thoughts are so much higher than my thoughts that I have to have a basic understanding of who he is. Confidence based upon evidence, but I'm not going to have complete answers to these huge questions. Which brings us to our main point. Faith means obeying even when I don't fully understand. Principle number five. Faith... Involves foregoing sin, even though it can be a lot of fun and very exciting. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 and 25. I hope you read the entire chapter. I'm having to pick and choose different sections here because of time. By faith, Moses refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So when you read the story of Moses in the Old Testament, the way it comes across in the Old Testament is that Moses chose because he had been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was kind of a prince. He was in the court, but he he was a Jew. So he decided at one point in time to identify with the Jews which were a slave group people in Egypt. And in Exodus, it seems to suggest he did that for ethnicity reasons. I'm a Jew, they're Jews, I'm with them, right? But in Hebrews chapter 11, we're given a little bit new perspective. And the new perspective is yes, yes, he did it for ethnicity reasons, but another reason he did it is because he was willing to let go, to forego the enjoyment and the pleasures of sin because they're fleeting, let me ask you a question. Can sin be fun? Show of hands. Let me ask that again. Can sin be fun? Show of hands. Yeah, is there are a lot more of you now. Yeah, I got a ton of fun. First time you guys are like, eh. That's the point. We wouldn't sin if it weren't fun. And can I just be serious with you? If you have trouble admitting that, yeah, sin can be a lot of fun. That's part of your problem. You're, you're tricking yourself. It's why we do sin, because it's quicker, it's easier, it's more fun, it's exciting. That's the point. But the pleasure of sin, it's fleeting, which means it fades. It also means it's this idea that sin eventually always bites you. It always hurts you. It always chokes you. It always stings you. It always eventually smells. A couple weeks ago, I was driving to the office super early, and I'm in Elsa Brandy Hills, and as I was driving down to, to get to Appian Way, a skunk ran across the road, right? I was like, it. I stopped the car, right? Let the skunk cross. And I had a flashback of when I lived in, in Terra Hill. Sandy and I lived there for a while before we bought a house in Elsa Brandy, and I don't know why there was, we went through a period of that whole neighborhood, there were skunks, and I would walk the dog, and he got sprayed once, and well, he was in the backyard, and we heard him fighting with what we thought was a cat, which made me really proud of him, but then we realized <laughs> it wasn't a cat, it was a skunk, right? So I'm looking through the window, I see the, oh my goodness, so he gets sprayed by the skunk, he goes running around the house, right, to the garage, goes into the doggy door, goes through the garage, into the house because the door was open and starts rubbing his face on the carpet. Ah, ah. Yeah, that's how I felt. That's like, no, no. So I grabbed the dog, took him to the bathtub, right? Took some of Sandy's fancy shampoo, washed him off. <laughs> Do you think it took the smell away? It didn't, right? Now, I know this is going to be hard for some of you to believe. That was back in the days before the Google was around. So we didn't have any, how are we going to, so we called a couple people and they said, wash him in tomato juice. I'm like, you what? So I sent Sandy to the grocery store for five cans of tomato juice, right? So then I washed the dog in tomato juice, right? It was like a sign, a, a scene out of Psycho in my, there's <laughs> tomato juice everywhere. And the dog was like, what are you doing, right? But I washed him up, right? And well, that's not bad. So I washed him again. Then we cleaned the carpet. We did that for three days. Wash the dog in tomato juice, clean the carpet. Wash the dog in tomato juice, clean the carpet for three days. And at the end of the three days, we're like, 
think we got it. I think it's gone. One week later, one week later, someone comes to our house. I open the door. They don't even walk in. I just open the door and they're like, what died in your house? You know what I realized at that moment? Because we had been around it, we didn't smell it anymore. We'd become accustomed to it. I don't think it smells that bad. And then when someone from the outside world comes in, they're like, well, you are nasty. <laughs> Can I tell you something? It's the same way with sin. Some of us have been around it so long. Some of us have been doing it so long. You don't realize how bad it smells in God's eyes. You don't realize that. And so someone that cares for you, especially your soul, th- this is me saying you've got to stop. Why? Because it's, it's a way to express your faith. You forego the pleasures of sin. We admitted that. It's fun. I'm going to not do that for the sake of my long-term spiritual health. The last one. I'm going to wrap up with this. Number six. I'm going to wrap up with this, and then we'll, I'll let you go. I got to do it, and I'm going to jump into Hebrews 12. Accepting Jesus as Savior, even though most of you don't, and most people won't. Okay? Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, some people say cloud of witnesses, depending on what translation. Cloud of witnesses, crowd of witnesses. He's just spent the entire chapter talking about these incredible men and women of faith. Because we have their example, he says this. He says this. He says, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of your faith. Here's how I want to end. Listen, I can talk to you about believing. I can talk to you about giving. I can talk to you about obeying. But unless you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, nothing else matters. That's right. It's the first domino. He's the author of your faith. He's the pioneer of your faith. He's the one that perfects your faith. Amen. I'm going to wrap it up with this. Her name was Evelyn Moores. She was an accomplished climber. She had climbed Mount Rainier and many great mountains around the world. Successfully, she decided to take a gig doing a publicity stunt in St. Louis. On April the 30th, 1976, so this is a while ago, she went to the Mark Twain South County Bank. And when she went there, it was a two-story building. She was just going to rappel on the front of the building, no big deal, right? Um, But it was just so people could see. She went up to the top of the building and she put her rope and attached it to the pipe and the grate at the top and she started her little stint. And, and for all practical purposes, everything should have been fine. One small problem. The grate at the top of the building had been corroded and it wasn't secured properly. And after she was about 40, 50 feet in the air, she fell to the floor and she lost her, she, she lost her, her life and she died. You could say that her faith was misplaced. Can I tell you something? There's one and only one person that will never drop you. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. I told you at the beginning I was going to ask you to pick one of six. Let's put it on the screen. What one thing does God want you to do to improve and be a better person of faith? Believing, giving, serving, obeying, foregoing sin, 
or is it accepting Jesus? Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, take a moment. That slide is still on the screen, so if you have to peek again, go ahead and do it. Don't waste the last 30 minutes of your life. You're here because you want to please God. You're here because you want to be a person of faith. Which one of those six do you need to get better at or adjust or change? You figure it out. If you're here today and maybe you're saying, Dave, I I want to accept Christ. That's my decision point. I want to encourage you to pray this very simple prayer. Dear God, today I put my faith in you, my trust in you. I understand what that word means now. God, I trust that your son Jesus was who he said he was. I trust that he died on the cross for my sins. And I trust and believe that that is the only way that I gain a relationship with you in eternity in heaven. I will hold on to your son Jesus as best as I can, even though I don't fully understand. I choose to follow you and obey you from this day forward. Father, for whoever prayed that prayer for the first time today, or for many of us who prayed that prayer years ago in a vacation Bible school, a youth camp, with our parents in the back room before we went to sleep, whenever it was, Father, we're here. We want to be a people of faith. At the end of our days, we want you to give us a high five and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And today we we get it and understand it just a little bit more what that means. Father, work through us, teach us. I pray that this would be a stepping stone so as we go forward the next four or five weeks, as we come out of it, we would be confident based upon the evidence of who you are that our faith is real and it matters. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. amen.